But once you are one person, as Eric said, it's completely easy uh, to, to do everything uh, yourself. Once you're three people, you start to communicating. And once you are 10, you need to first set up the proper, the first processes. With 30, it goes much more complicated and this, and this goes on uh, with, with that, with that uh, speed. So basically what you always keep, need to keep in mind as a founder is that what, since the company is growing certain periods of time, you need to reach, rethink all processes and things you're actually doing within the company from scratch. Coming to you from WHU on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Um, Stan and Alex, welcome to the Awesome Founder Podcasts. Great that you had time uh, for uh, joining us. Now, it's, it's actually great that we have two founders of the same company here in the room. That gives it a bit of a special dynamic, which I always like. And given that both of you are here, I think a nice question to start off in this podcast is about how actually you two guys uh, met. Uh, I know you both have a background as being both students from WAU, but as I understood, you're not, uh, you did not be a part of the same cohort. So uh, was WAU the, the place where you met or did you actually meet somewhere else? I can take this one. Yeah, yes. thanks a lot for having us. First, uh, great to great to be here and uh, talk about uh, Emily and our journey. Uh, Stan and us uh, and I didn't didn't meet at VAU funnily enough, even though we were there at the same time. Okay, I was doing my bachelor's degree uh, and Stan his masters. Uh, we might have seen each other, but we met afterwards while we were were doing an internship at the venture capital fund. Um, yeah, that's basically basically how we met. Okay, and and was it immediately a special spark between the two of you to, to kind of uh, have the feeling like I need to work together with this guy to create a startup, or was it something that slowly built over time? Well, that's an interesting question. I never thought about it in so much detail, but I believe it was the process. I mean, Stan and I we were sitting next to each other. Um, at the fund, we were working together, and of course, uh, we uh, re realized pretty soon that um, we get along well and uh, that we like to work together. Um, and yeah, also personally, uh, we were going out uh, after work and uh, okay. um, enjoying the, the intern life. <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, as, as you do when you're in the venture capital fund, you talk a lot about different business models, and we like the way we, th uh, we think about business and um, how we analyze different different models uh, and that's when the idea came up okay why don't we do something together yeah and and Stan was there a, for you a specific reason why you thought it would be great to do something with Alex together and it feels now a bit like a dating show but <laughs> yes, it is. It <laughs> I mean so I, it, I, I'm always intrigued by how do you choose your co-founder so was there a specific reason why you felt kind of attracted to Alex from a business perspective, then I would say? Uh, it's a very interesting question, but I think it was more a process and I completely agree with Alex. So what I think helped us to uh, yeah, find each other in terms of entrepreneurial journey 
is that uh, we had the same vision, right? So we both had that idea that at some point in life, we want to be founders and want to do our own business. And it's like, it's excited us from the first day, basically. And um, even though we've been at a time at a venture capital fund, for us, it was just a, a learning time and learning period of time where we wanted to learn as much as we can. But later on, someone to, uh, to start our own company. And uh, what helped us is that uh, I think this this vision, it was really nice actually to, uh, to have an idea. Okay, we both want to do it. The second is that our interest in terms of doing business were very similar too. So we wanted, both of us wanted to go into uh, consumer goods because it's, it's uh, excited us to, to have your, your product in your hand. And it's like uh, something cool. You can say, okay, look at this. It's something we have created together. Uh, and then I think every, everything else was more or less a process of when, how we tackled it. So we said, okay, if we wanted to do it at some point, why don't we start doing it now? And then we started discussing about different markets and what we like to do in terms of product category. Uh, then we figured out, okay, pets is such a cool category to look at. And um, we both grew mm -hmm. up with pets, so we had a kind of connection to it already. Okay. I've been at, a, at another VC firm and had some, some insights into PETS too. Um, and then at, uh, at the current fund where we, we had, did the internship, we had also some encounters with PETS. And we were like, okay, this is something pretty cool. And maybe we should, you know, do our research and dig deeper and talk to customers and uh, or like potential customers and, and users. Yeah, and this basically uh, helped us to you know, kind of, the vision and the, the category kind of bound, bound us together and uh, give us, let's yeah. say, the first push okay. to do it. Huh? Yeah. And of course, immediately we will talk more about Mamely and, and so the pet category that you have chosen. Maybe I, I just want to briefly touch upon something that you said because you were saying, look, we share the particular vision. And yeah. that's actually a word that I often hear when I talk with founders, the, the importance of having a shared vision. At the same time, it's quite an, an abstract word. So um, could you maybe explain a bit more what that for you meant, this shared vision? What, what would you say was the kind of essence of this shared vision that you and Alex shared? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I can, Alex, you can, you can uh, adjust and uh, make comments, of course. But for me, meaning having a, a vision is meaning to have a, uh, a particular goal where you don't really have a per perfect plan for it yet. Yeah. But there's something mm. quite abstract, which uh, touches you emotionally. Yeah. Um, for us, it was like uh, entrepreneurship, which excited us. So we kind of, I mean, you could always see when we, 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 we talked about uh, business models and startups that our eyes uh, lightened up um, talking about it. And, um, yeah, and this 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 vision is it's you're completely right. It's a quite an abstract abstract word, but I think the more you think about it, the more you feel that it's something more uh, very individual and emotional. Yeah, and if something touches your emotions and it's something let's say some far in the future that excites you, that's probably can be defined as a vision. And if you both have, let's say, the sparks in your eyes um, and this uh, yeah, plan also, which is maybe not perfectly mm -hmm. defined yet, um, but intention to do it, um, I think that's that's something um, yeah, that's really, really helpful. Yeah. Okay. Alex, would you agree or do, would you add something to that? 
Yeah, I would, I would agree. Uh, I believe we were sharing the same vision in, in two ways. Uh, the vision personally of becoming entrepreneurs yeah. and secondly, the business vision of building a product that people love and that people can hold in their hands. Um, and having these uh, shared visions and these shared ideas then brought us together and uh, made us uh, very excited about the opportunity of building a company in this space. Yeah. And so in the end, in 2020, uh, the two of you decided to co-found Memily. Um, so a company that mainly provides kind of uh, healthy products for uh, pets and more specifically dogs. Um, can, can you explain a bit more, Alex, why you decided to start this company? What was the kind of pain point that you observed that according to you and Stan needed to be solved? Yeah. So we noticed that uh, pets develop problems during their lifespans. And uh, when we looked deeper into the data, we saw that a huge amount of numbers uh, of uh, number of pets is actually suffering from different problems. More than 80% of dogs over eight develop joint issues. More than 80% of dogs over three develop dental issues. Mm. More than 50% are overweight and the list goes on and on. Um, and we were wondering, okay, why are there no easy and simple solutions to help pet owners with these problems? And basically started talking to um, to dog owners in order to understand it uh, um, deeper and get a better feeling for the pain point. Uh, and once we clarified, okay, there is a real need for a product that solves uh, these issues in an easy and comfortable way, uh, that's when we came across uh, supplements uh, for, for pets, which is a very new uh, category mm. for us humans. It's also widely used. Uh, I think more than 50% of Europeans use uh, supplements on a regular basis okay. but for pets it's it's still new um, and what we saw is okay often trends from humans uh, are replicated towards their pets it's what we call humanization in the industry yeah. um, so we thought okay it's just a matter of time until supplements also become relevant for pets and they are an easy and nice way to solve these health issues which by then could only be solved by um, by visiting the veterinarian or by buying medical products. So we saw a gap in the market, we saw a big pain point, and we saw a way uh, from the human category, which could be replicated to pets. Yeah, okay, great. And, and Stan, I saw on the website that you quite heavily emphasized this collaboration with, with vets, eh? so the, the doctors for the animals. Can you explain a bit more why this kind of collaboration with veterinarians is so important for you guys? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, usually it is like this, that um, the category where we are involved is a very new category, right? So there's a lot of education to do and um, veterinarians are still an important, uh, um, uh, yeah, um, important party who is like uh, shaping the, the the meaning and shaping also the market and the pet industry. So mm -hmm. what we are doing in that terms is that um, we are first of all in really close contact uh, with vets. We have uh, uh, veterinarians in-house who are supporting us in the production de product development process, but also in the consult consultation of customers when it comes to questions to nutrition, but also regular questions to have. 
we have also a Televet service um, where basically every customer, uh, and, and not only customer, but everybody could actually um, could actually join and uh, ask questions and um, yeah, make set up an appointment. Um, so we have a lot of uh, knowledge in house, but for us it's also important to talk to um, to industry experts in that uh, in our field. And here we talk to different uh, universities yeah, who are uh, really on the okay. on the edge of uh, scientific research. Um, that's why, like all of our products, are based on knowledge we could gain from different sources, and mainly, of course, from external um, external veterinarians and experts who are like leading in in Europe, and are um, yeah, and are supporting us and helping to build the best product possible when it comes to effectiveness, but also taste, which is super important for pets too, right? And also for humans, actually, it's yeah. the same. Taste of the product has to be good. No. Okay. And and can you give maybe a concrete example of of how you of a project with for which you work together with universities? What yeah. kind of projects do I have to think about? Yeah. Well, the simplest one is new product development. Uh, so once okay. we have identified the needs of the customer and the needs of the pets, uh, so basically looking at data from uh, researchers, external researchers, but also looking at to customer behavior and requests on, I don't know, Google uh, or, or Amazon or other sources. Yeah. Um, we know exactly what kind of pro problem we want to tackle. Then we take this idea. Uh, we have an internal internal product development team who knows how what is the, the right um, form of the product to be. So often it's actually the chew. Yeah, that's like the, the snack format. Um, once we know this, we basically uh, select the right ingredients to tackle those specific problems. And here we try to have a wide um, variety of different ingredients who can tackle the issue from different aspects. Um, because often if you think about joint issues, for example, there are different mechanisms um, behind it why a dog uh, develops certain kind of uh, yeah, problem, so to say, health problem. And you can tackle mm -hmm. this this uh, this issue from different angles. Yeah. So that's why we look for the ingredients who have uh, the highest effectiveness on that field. Um, and then we discuss it basically with, with universities, uh, what their feedback is in terms of uh, bioactivity of the product, in terms of um, the, the actual effectiveness, the actual research on the research papers, because often if you're, if you're not uh, so deep in the, in the, the, in the research field, yeah. You need a little bit of background to understand what the research paper actually mean, right? <laughs> the, the, the behind <laughs> it, because uh, you know it. Uh, uh, yeah, research can be done in different ways, yeah? Uh, yeah. and you also because those people have much more touch points with those ingredients. Um, they often can give us um, first-hand experience, uh, which they have uh, gained with, with their customers and, and people who actually ask them specific problems and then basically once we summarize all this knowledge we bring it back to the, our product development team we set we, we differentiate the recipe and then we try to make the product happen so to say on the machine okay yeah, but that, that also means that you two guys need to kind of develop quite an in-depth knowledge of this this whole kind of industry not about what con, con, kind of ingredients could help to address particular diseases how how did you become kind of an expert in that, Alex? Can you maybe say something about that? 
I wouldn't call myself an expert okay. in, in that. I mean, there are people that spend years in university studying this kind of stuff. Um, but we were uh, learning a lot and learning also in the process. Um, I think uh, the health of dogs and uh, the pet uh, category, something uh, we are really passionate about and something that we enjoy working with. So it was easy to okay. gain, gain knowledge uh, and to use this knowledge. But from uh, day, uh, day one, we have been working with uh, experts uh, that, that helped us developing uh, really good products. And uh, I think we wouldn't be able doing it all by ourselves. Yeah. And because I saw, for instance, on Glassdoor that you're either hiring now vets uh, for the company, not so that you really want to have this kind of expertise in-house um, to, to use it for new product development. We actually already have veterinarians as part of the team, okay. also a full-time employee, uh, but we want to further leverage the expertise of veterinarians and enlarge the team in that sense. Uh, so we are, we are looking for someone. Okay, perfect. Um, and in the end, as I understand it, your business model is an, what we call a direct-to-consumer business model, where people can order the products on your website. They can also take a kind of subscription if they want. Um, can you maybe explain a bit why you decided for this business model? Because you could also uh, take the decision to have your products in big uh, pet shops or uh, to take an alternative approach. Why was this approach attractive for you guys? Uh, in the beginning, the direct-to-consumer business model seemed like the logical first uh, channel for us um, because uh, we wanted to be very close to the customer mm. and really understand their needs. Yeah. Uh, the problem with retail, I mean, retail is a big channel and a lot of pet customers uh, still shop uh, offline. Yeah. So this is also highly relevant. Uh, but uh, you're not in direct contact uh, with the customer as it's a B2B2C model in, in that sense, right? Um, so yeah, the, um, the direct-to-consumer model was um, the logical first step as we want to be close to the customer as it's relatively easy uh, to set up. And uh, to be honest, in the beginning, as, as a new brand, uh, you're a nobody, right? Yeah. And the big retailers uh, will struggle listing someone that doesn't have any brand awareness and any traction. So um, um, direct-to-consumer was great to learn a lot about the customer needs, to also innovate the product. Uh, and now, luckily, we are also moving into new channels and also moving into, into retail. Now that we have a certain brand awareness and are established within the market, uh, now that there's already demand for our products, um, the retailers uh, are also uh, asking us okay. if, they, if they can list a memory. So this yeah. is uh, a more a favorable position to be in yeah. um, and um, um, also with the current market uh, environment um, becoming an omni-channel brand and also moving into retail uh, seems to be um, the, the right way to go. Yeah, okay. So that's really part of the strategy to, to take this omni-channel strategy where you do both D2C but also sell the products via retail. Okay. Great. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe um, because I, you were both mentioning already quite heavily the importance of uh, a good relationship management with your customer. And you need to really understand the customer. Uh, you need to know what they like about your product, what they maybe don't like. Uh, Stan, can you maybe talk a bit more about your approach in that respect? So, so how do you guys try to have a really in-depth understanding 
about the customer needs, the customer feedback? How, how do you approach that in general? Yeah. So I think the, the best recipe is to have a good customer support team. <laughs> so mm -hmm. a team which literally can not only uh, tackle the problem of the, of, the, of, the, of the customer, but also is able to translate the problems back into operational business tasks in, within the company. And there we gain a lot of uh, feedback uh, in terms of, um, I don't know, packaging, in terms of um, uh, uh, unboxing experience, but also on the product itself, in terms of taste of the product um, and the effectiveness and, and stuff like this. Um, however, what we are doing is we, uh, since I think half a year now, we started to automa automate this process. We basically okay. use quite sophisticated uh, BI tools by analyzing all the incoming uh, requests uh, and uh, using uh, uh, yeah uh, some 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 AI techniques to to match this this input and figure out what is the best uh, business decision to kind of make the work for the customer support team also a little bit easier, but also for us as a business team to make it a bit more more structured. On the other hand, what we what we also like to do is honestly just talking to the customer himself. So doing research on one-on-one -on -one basis. So calling the customer is the best way to do it. Uh, be prepared, of course, um, but also have your yeah, have your hypothesis you wanted to test and do it on a one-on-one -on -one basis because often customers complain, but maybe it is a little bit of a more the emotional point of view and it's not the actual problem which okay. is behind it and often it's a matter of communication, which we have to do better because often a lot of things are already considered, but maybe the customer just does not really perceive it that way we perceive it. So this is, let's say, the two different tools. We use uh, input customer data, okay. but also we go out to the customer himself and talking to him directly. Yeah, and and you mentioned hypothesis testing, which which <laughs> gets a bit of an, a trigger in my head because that's something that we also so try to learn our students that that's very important to do hypothesis testing, especially in the initial stages of startups when you're still kind of clarifying the assumptions that you have uh, and, and try to kind of quickly determine what is the best way to go. Can you maybe give some concrete examples of what kind of hypotheses you guys are testing and, and how you do it? Is it that you do A-B experiments or if you have alternative approaches? Yeah. I think in the early stages of Memely, and this is a little bit of, let's say, historical insights here, it's exactly what yeah. we've done. So we had a long list on hypotheses we wanted to test, which were important for the product, but also in the, for the business case. And then we used, um, we basically talked for, on the customer side, we had a Facebook group actually, which is still existing. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you can go on the Memely, uh, on Facebook on our Memely page and go to Hundegesundheit, yeah. so Dog uh, Health, uh, and we are probably the number okay. one uh, Facebook group uh, for, in that, uh, for that topic. But we founded this group and we started talking to customers and started uh, asking them direct questions. So, for example, I don't know, how important is taste for you, you know? And then they had to rank it basically. Do you, have, uh, do you buy products on stock so that you have a little bit of uh, yeah, treasure box, so to say, at yeah. home? So to understand how the customer actually behaves when it comes to, for us, it was in the beginning treats, but now we do, of course, supplements, which is a bit more sophisticated, of course, uh, approach to it. Um, but basically, um, yeah, you know, just 
finding the right channel to your customers is the best way and talking to them it's probably the the yeah the, the easiest easiest way to do it um and right now of course it's a little bit more complicated so we do a lot of a b tests on the website i mean alex can give them with more insights but we have a we have a a b test funnel basically where we test assumptions okay. when it comes to conversion rate of the shop when it comes to communication of the uh, um, yeah of the brand on the shop it's a little bit more technical but in the initial stage it was literally finding your customer asking him questions you know interview him try to figure out whether you're on the right track or not um and um, yeah, yeah and try to connect the dots basically yeah Okay, so maybe let's nerd out a bit and talk about this AB experiment funnel because that sounds very intriguing, I have to say. Alex, can you can you explain a bit more what you are exactly doing there? I mean, we run a lot of AB tests all, all the time. Um and there's a lot of different hypotheses that we that we test on the website. Um I mean, there are two main growth levels for us as a uh, as a direct to consumer business the one side is uh, a new customer revenue and the other side the retention revenue of existing customers yeah. and in both of these uh, segments uh, we um, continuously run run tests uh, ideally to acquire new customers or to increase uh, lifetime yeah. value right can you give um, maybe an example of a very specific experiment that you guys are doing do i need to think about is it about the color of the website or, or what kind of Stuff, are you testing? Uh, 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 we realize that the color often does, doesn't make a big difference. <laughs> okay. uh, and, uh, um, of course, we have been also running a lot of little tests, but at the end, we also like to test bigger hypotheses. Uh, what we have been recently doing is, uh, if you go to one of our product pages of uh, one specific supplement, we were testing uh, the pre-selection of a subscription. Um, so the customer uh, at Memily has the option to buy our product as a one-time purchase or as a subscription. And initial, initially, one-time purchase was pre-selected. Um, and we had the hypothesis, um, if we, um, uh, we knew that uh, subscribers have a much better lifetime value than non-subscribers. That's logical, right? Yeah. So uh, we were testing, okay, if we um, pre-select subs subscribers, uh, do we gain enough more subscribers in relation to lost one-time purchasers? Because people sometimes, if they see the subscription is pre-selected, they won't buy at all. Yeah. Does, that this additional lifetime value that we generate compensates the um, the uh, the one-time purchasers. Yeah. So this was the test uh, we were running. Uh, I hope this was not too much in detail for the No, no, no. It's, I think it's interesting to hear how you approach it, yeah. Uh, yeah, but those are like some of the tests that we do, um, and where we uh, where we try to uh, sharpen the business model, improve conversion rate, no. uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, and in this case, uh, grow uh, the, the lifetime value of our of our cohorts. And, and can you maybe remember an, an hypothesis that you tested at the beginning as quite a fundamental assumption that after testing you find out that completely didn't make any sense that you. Had to kind of drastically change your opinion about a certain part of your business model or your product? Mm -hmm. 
so we didn't do a hard pivot i would say where yeah. we were com completely wrong with one of our big hypotheses mm, i can't think of think of anything right now Stan, okay. do you have one of I have another uh, thing that we tested in the beginning, which is prices. I think that's something that yeah. every um, uh, um, business owner, especially also in um, uh, in uh, e-commerce, should spend uh, time on on testing. And in e-commerce, of course, it's easy to test, right? It's easy to change the prices. Uh, and we realized that um, um, yeah, people are willing to spend uh, uh, money on on the house of their pets. Um, and um, this also uh, led to the decision to go with a very premium positioning of the product and of the brand because uh, when testing different price points, we realized that there's uh, some elasticity and people yeah. Um, yeah, basically like to support the health of the pets with premium products. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we wouldn't have realized this if we didn't test different price points. Yeah, because that's, that's something I also discuss heavily with my students uh, how to kind of test willingness to pay um and i think uh, what what you shouldn't do is simply ask people like oh how much would you be willing to pay because actually sometimes people underestimate how much they're willing to pay i think especially for this kind of kind of emotional products uh, like uh, supplements for your pets to make them healthier can you tell a bit more about how you actually try to find out willingness to pay yeah yeah, basically, when we started all in the beginning, we listed the product at different price points. Okay. Um, let's just make it as an assumption. We put the product for 19 euros, 29, 39, and 49. Yeah. Um, that was the range where we thought, okay, this is what people could be willing to pay for a supplement for pets. Um, and uh, yeah, at some price points, we didn't see any difference. So yeah. we saw, for instance, 19 euros was converting as well as 29 euros. Yeah. So um, it made sense to go for a higher price, basically. Yeah. 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 I mean, all of this is hypothetical. Uh, the <laughs> test was a little bit more, more complex, and yeah. uh, uh, but still, um, and that was uh, how we proceeded. Yeah, but at the principle was like we experimented with different price settings looked at the conversion and if we saw that an increase in price did not lead to a decrease in conversion you actually had an indication exactly. that the willingness to pay might actually be higher than what you initially expected exactly and it's a real life uh, uh, test setup yeah. so it's real data uh, and i think it's, it's also funny what you mentioned earlier asking the customers because we did in the beginning okay uh, and uh, we realized that in the end, customers uh, want, uh, of course, all the features, mm -hmm. all the product features. They want organic, they want this, they want that, but they want the lowest price, right? And this simply isn't uh, viable from a business perspective, even though we always try to offer the best product, the best price, right? Uh, but uh, sometimes customers want too much and uh, want to pay too little. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and maybe, uh, Stan, just to, to kind of wrap up this this kind of topic about how to manage relationship with your customers of course today we have the whole kind of generative ai revolution with ChatGTP and and other tools that are rapidly emerging are you guys trying to leverage that kind of tools in one way or another to further increase your customer understanding 
Yes, definitely. And I can advise everybody to do it too. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. jumping on new technologies <laughs> is always very beneficial. And I think that makes also our startup, um, yeah, a better business model from my point of view, because you're, you can adapt uh, really fast and you should, you should do it if you have the chance to do it. So what we are doing is actually, um, also the customer side, first of all, we're going into a better customer experience by using AI technology also to automate our processes within within um, within the customer support team. So being, being fast to your consumer, okay. we figured out it's extremely important to have a really good first touch point and it has to be on the solution side. So not checking in, you know, uh, that uh, you re we received your email, but to give the first points to this, towards the solution to the consumer. And uh, we going, we are working on this response time, yeah, first touch point time, um, using AI technology to be much faster on that side, to figuring out what are the, the best problems we should, uh, we should focus on. Um, uh, the system gives us uh, suggestions, um, what kind of problems to tackle first, yeah, to be the, 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 the fast, as fast as possible and which problems you will, you should do a little later, or there's a second level support required or something like this. It's, it's quite automated already. Yeah. Okay. So you're really delving into these kind of new topics to, to automate and speed up, uh, your interaction with customers. Okay. Definitely. Great. Um, yeah. Um, now, uh, uh, last year, I actually don't know if you know, but uh, uh, Glassdoor had this kind of ranking of the 100 fastest growing startups in Germany, and you guys were on that list. Uh, so you were seen as one of the fastest growing startups in Germany, which is nice, of course. I think uh, growth is always a good indicator. But I think it also triggers challenges because uh, if you have to grow fast, that, that triggers new challenges. Uh, new problems to uh, address based on your kind of current experiences what do, would you see as the most challenging part of managing as a founder a fast-growing company Alex what would be your kind of opinion here so if you get up in the morning what is the first kind of <laughs> a problem that you're thinking about nowadays um, um. Uh, I mean, we we grow uh, we grew quickly, like from zero to almost fifty uh, employees mm -hmm. in yeah. um, in two years, uh, and um, there were a lot of challenges which are still present uh, right now, which we uh, have have to tackle. Uh, I mean, for us as uh, first time founders, um, we um, uh, had a limited experience in in a manager and management. Yeah. And uh, I feel uh, it's also a challenge um, uh, for me personally um, yeah, to uh, improve my management skills, to become a better le a leader while uh, running um, also part of the operations, which um, we are uh, still still doing. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's one side. And the other side uh, is uh, from an organizational perspective. Um, creating an organization that people still feel as one team, right? Um, especially uh, building the whole company uh, remote. Um, yeah. In the beginning, if it's 10 or 20 people, you can still talk to everyone on a uh, um, um, uh, weekly basis uh, or very regularly. But once you hit this 30, 40, 50 people mark, 
um, you have to create uh, systems that keep people together and that keep people aligned to work towards the same same goals. So uh, we have started this um, uh, last year, and uh, this is also one of the main focuses for us uh, this year to um, implement uh, good management systems um, like uh, OKRs, a good vision mission, uh, the, the values of our culture, but uh, also um, yeah, other communication formats like really, really solid all hands, good management weeklies, QBRs, uh, and updating the team also um, constantly on where we are at in terms of the achievement of our goals. All of this uh, uh, has to be uh, has to be done yeah. in order to keep a fast growing team together, and in order to uh, ensure that we are working towards uh, towards the, the same goals. And I have to say, it's a process. Uh, we have uh, also changed formats a couple of times. We are constantly also trying to improve um, our, um, our our systems. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm happy to say that uh, also we, we make big steps into the right direction. And um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad where we are right now. And can you give an example of, of a kind of shift in formats that you have made? So where did you feel the need to shift formats? Um, I mean, we always had an all hands since uh, the beginning, yeah. uh, but uh, of course this uh, had to be professionalized. And in the beginning, everyone was able to say what they are currently doing, right? And then we had to cre create different departments. We had to completely revise the structure of the all hands. Uh, at some point of time, it's not possible that every department gets yeah. uh, uh, their share of voice in every all hand, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, um, at some point of time, we decided, okay, the all hands, it's not a reporting meeting for the whole company, mm. but it's a meeting to energize everyone and to bring the culture alive and to uh, align everyone on the, on, the, on the vision and mission. So this is basically the process yeah. for us, how the, the all hands changed over time. And I believe it will still be, still be changing. Uh, so, um, yeah. Stan, do you have anything to add in terms of challenges that you are experiencing on a daily basis? Yeah. Um, I would like to add maybe a slightly different angle on what, what Alex is already saying, that if you grow, um, I think it's a very, very cool rule you should always consider as a startup founder. This is the rule of three and ten. It's a rule uh, by okay. CEO Frakuten. Uh, I don't exactly remember the name of, of this guy. But uh, it's an extremely important rule, and it basically helps you to navigate growth. So once you are one person, as Alex said, it's completely easy uh, to, to do everything uh, yourself. Once you're three people, you start communicating. And once you are 10, you need to first set up the proper, the first processes. With 30, it goes much more complicated, and this, and this goes on. Uh, with, with that with that uh, speed so basically what you always keep, mm. need to keep in mind as a founder is that what since the company is growing at certain periods of time you need to reach rethink all processes as things you're actually doing within the company from scratch and it starts with the communication it starts i mean for, for us communication formats for example is the best example in the beginning it was more a reporting setup as alex said but then we realized okay we have like, I don't know now, about 40, 50 people. And the people are like, uh, most of them 
they don't really want to know in detail what every department is doing because they're here just to see each other, you know, they want <laughs> to communicate and they want also to see us as a founder being this yeah, figure and somebody who has a plan what we're actually doing. Now, yeah, so that's why we shifted it towards more like strategy meeting, towards uh, deep dives into different categories and making it much more, uh, yeah, actually bringing more meat to the bone of the whole, the whole company so that people have a feeling that uh, we as a company going to the right direction, what Alex and Stan are actually saying, uh, so to say. Um, yeah, and in daily operations, it's it's a lot of um, communication also. For, for, for me personally, it was uh, setting up proper one-on-ones. Um, so really working on these formats basically every month yeah to understand okay is this the right format for your for your direct report um do you cover all things you want to cover you feel that the person you're talking to and who's uh yeah working in your team is doing the things they should do should working are they happy meanwhile so there's a lot of um yeah asking you know uh, and feeling between the lines and between the the explicit communication, yeah, and I think a one-on-one format can help you to kind of zoom out and to reflect what is actually happening and giving the people the right impulses, getting the right impulses for feedback to your business, and then uh, push the thing forward. Okay, and and I, I was quite also intrigued what what Alex was saying, like okay, we we had to kind of. Um, get up to speed in terms of management and leadership skills. And then I was thinking like, yeah, but actually you both spent time at WAU at the business school. Would that not be exactly what you <laughs> should have learned at WAU in terms of <laughs> skills that you need to have? Yeah. So, so maybe just as a reflection, what would you think are the things that you have learned at WAU that help you? And what are the things, if you look back, that you missed at WAU that you would have liked to have that would be really helpful in managing this kind of trajectories? Good question. Um, I think what I've, there's one thing actually I learned and I really still still remember uh, uh, talking about it and thinking about it is that um, we had a lecture about a strategy actually and strategy execution. Mm-hmm. I think it's called the name of the lecture. And um, we, we basically dig deep into, okay, once you have a strategy, how do you actually set it up and communicate to the whole team so that everybody's aligned and everybody knows what to do. And I'm still like uh, thinking of uh, yeah, processes to, um, uh, to execute it properly. And it's definitely something um, as a, you know, as a, um, as a first touch point, um, uh, how to think about strategy. And then of course, often you always develop as a founder thing and as, as a leader, also your own strategies and your own processes, right? But then at least you know where you need you can go back and look up let's say the literature look up the theory and then make it of course uh, adapt to your own style mm-hmm. and to your, to your own company um in the yeah to reflecting on that i'm not sure what could be could be done better maybe but actually we is doing a pretty good job in terms of some, if, if uh, somebody wants to start their own company, there's a lot of opportunities to try out yourself on, you know, product market fit or like pitching even. Um, you have quite a good network. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, net, yeah, I don't know. Alex, do you, do you have any thoughts on where we could have supported us? Uh, Alex, you, you were in The Bachelor. <laughs> what did you miss in The Bachelor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
maybe I just picked the wrong courses, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I think it's already there, uh, and there's so many good uh, tools, infrastructure, and network uh, that uh, students can can choose from. from. Um, and for me, uh, when I was uh, at, at university, of course, I uh, I had entrepreneurship in, in mind as one of my ultimate goals, but I was preparing for different journeys and thought I would go into entrepreneurship at a later point of time. Yeah. So I didn't uh, properly use uh, the, the VAU infrastructure at that time uh, to an extent that it would uh, help have helped me more in my entrepreneurial journey now. Yeah, but maybe on a broader level, eh, because indeed it's not BAU specific, but on a broader level, if based on your experiences in the past two years, and if I would come to you and, and say to you, oh, I want to get input of, in how we can kind of uh, improve the course offerings at BAU to really prepare our students to become uh, good entrepreneurs, what kind of courses would you suggest? Oh. Maybe, maybe one is maybe one from my side uh, to suggest is um, a big learning was actually this you know organizational structure yeah? and it is um, like scaling companies from like from one person yeah or from two person if you are two co-founders scaling it like to the first hundred employees this is an incredible difficult journey because like. A lot of companies and that most of the companies are actually failing at this stage because at that time you need not only to to deliver uh, a good product market fit but also be able to uh, set up the organization in a way that it can actually grow and you can do a lot of mistakes yeah. which then would be called legacy yeah? Uh, yeah and in order to avoid this you can do a lot of things so for example like setting up proper communication processes and like for us, it was a learning to, you know, one-on-ones uh, is important, like uh, weekly business reviews, uh, monthly business reviews, quarterly business reviews, OKRs. This is uh, a part of, it's a, I would say, of course, it's strategy and of course, it's like operations as well. But in the end, it's a big part of it is also communication yeah, and making it mm. Right, uh, yeah, bring, it into, bring in the information into the right format that it reaches the person it needs to reach, yeah. and that's that's yeah. incredibly difficult to 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 break down. But I think those companies who succeed are definitely the ones who have this in place. I don't know if it's that the recipe for success, but it's definitely if they're succeeding, they yeah. have that hundred percent in in uh, in place. So I would suggest like organizational structure and communication would be yeah. one course I could suggest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, when we actually we uh, some some podcasts ago, we talked with Jack Singh and uh, Oliver Aust, who just published a, a book about called the Message Machine, and it's a whole book about how can startups, if they go from seed stage to growth stage, actually uh, manage their communications because that's also according to them one of the core aspects that you need to manage in a company if you want to become successful. So it's it's nice to see that you also resonate at that point. And, and I would agree that it's typically something that in business schools in general, I think we don't pay that much attention to. And it's more about the, the strategic stuff, which is also important, but actually how do you communicate in the end to your employees these core issues is something I think we maybe don't spend enough time on that. I, I think you have a good point there. 
Okay, also given the time, um, I want to just end with some, some brief questions that we always do, um, just also to get a bit the, the person behind the founder. Um, so what we always ask is, uh, do you have any suggestions for our audience in terms of books that they could read or podcasts that they can listen to? And they don't have to be business books, business podcasts, it can be, but you can also go broader if some particular books or podcasts have inspired you. Uh, do you have any suggestions? Maybe Alex, can I start with you? Yeah. Uh, um, I don't listen to a lot of, of podcasts, but in the beginning I was um, listening to uh, other um, founders from the, the pet and direct to consumer space. And I okay. thought this was quite helpful and there was yeah. so much knowledge we could gain from this. Uh, a book which uh, I recently enjoyed reading was uh, Peak Performance. Uh, which is about um, self-optimization and also about how to grow uh, as as uh, as a per person in uh, business and and life, and how to handle uh, a lot of uh, stress and also the importance of doing breaks and recovering from yeah. these phases of high stress. I think that's uh, something that's um, uh, that's also very very important as a founder. It's, it's quite intense, especially in the beginning. And uh, it's you're only able to reach peak performance and the best uh, uh, version of yourself if you take these breaks and also have time to reflect on what you're doing. And, and can you maybe very briefly give some concrete examples of what you try to do? Because as mentioned, eh, you're in this very kind of, um, yeah, I would not call it stressful, but a demanding position where you more and more have to take this leadership role. At the same time, you're still involved in operations. You're growing quickly. So I think it's it's a demanding <laughs> role that you have today. So how do you deal with these issues about making sure that there's still a kind of healthy balance? Do you have specific tactics that you're using? Uh so I think sleep is extremely important and I uh, always try to get enough enough sleep um, and uh, try to use uh, the time before I sleep and I wake up to um, calm down and uh, to in the mornings also to prime myself for a successful day. Um, I think this really made a difference uh, for me. Um, and uh, what's also really important for me is to find a balance in sports and with, with friends also to take uh, a day off on the weekend and don't do any work. Uh, I think these uh, things are um, uh, essential mm. um, because uh, entrepreneurship is a marathon uh, and uh, it's a long journey that takes uh, take years years, and it's uh, not possible to do a sprint for uh, for five, seven, or ten years. Um, so it's really about finding finding the balance and um, and having uh, activities uh, outside of, of work. And I suppose you also take some supplements, giving what you're what, what you're selling. Of course. <laughs> okay. uh, Stan, did you have any suggestions for books or podcasts that you want to share? Um, in terms of podcasts, like if you are into like startup and D two C, it's definitely I would say OMR podcast. So they always like invite uh, okay. interesting people. Um, yep. Uh, from different businesses, often CEOs, who explain the journey and also share the experiences and give often some ideas yeah, and hints. Um, in terms of books, I think I would suggest two, yeah, because uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's slightly different. One is um, From Founder to CEO. It's a really interesting book, actually, 
um, uh, written from from a, I think a German lady, as far as I remember. Um, basically, summarizing how uh, you, you you as a founder make a transition at some point in time when the company grows. In the beginning, you are the founder and you do everything yourself. You are founder time. You have an idea. You execute yeah. it. But at some point, like slowly, the transition goes into a more CEO position. And I think this transition is extremely difficult because a lot of people like stay founder or they're actually more CEO profiles, you know, and this is really important to understand this balance and also this transition if you want to do it. Um, one of the key points for me there, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of it basically, but is uh, to uh, time your reflections yeah? Ref and, and, and set up proper goals for yourself, not only for the business, but also for yourself and make work on yourself, you know? So it's uh, often we are really intuitively driven by doing things, but it's really important to do it on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, depending on the topic, but uh, sit down and reflect on your things you've done and set the goals for the next one. I think it's a really, really interesting hint, but there are much, much many more, uh, many, many more in there in this book. Um, and yeah, I can suggest like uh, from founder to CEO. And the second one is, I think it's a bit more broader, is uh, um, from uh, from good to, uh, sorry, it is uh, from good to great, yeah? um, which is yeah. the book from Jim Collins. I think a lot of people know it. It's a little bit more like yeah. high level, but I think uh, once you progress in the career as a founder or as a startup, it's really important to look into those things because often we are more really pulled into operational things. And it's really important to reflect on is your business still on track or not. And then, of course, be able to properly communicate. Yeah, and then we're back to the topic of communication. Yeah. <laughs> and then set it up and execute. So, yeah, from good to great and from founder to CEO. No, I think the book of Jim Collins is, I think, a book that also a lot of the, the very famous founders have on their bed shelf. So it's, uh, yeah. it has been a quite an influential book, I would say. So yeah. that's indeed a very so nice recommendation. Okay, guys, I think we have to end it here because it would be great to talk much more about how you do these A-B experiments. And I mean, it's quite a, a nerdy topic that I really like, but uh, we should not bore the audience too much with it. So, so thanks for sharing these insights. Uh, thanks for uh, kind of uh, giving a bit of a perspective of what we are, you're doing in the company. Um, so I really enjoyed it and I hope our audience can also learn something from it. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much, please. Okay. Thanks a lot. So then uh, we can end the session here. And for the audience, if you liked this episode, please don't forget to give us a good rating on your favorite uh, podcast platform that always helps us. And we hope we will see you again next time for the next episode. Bye. <laughs>